Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Jeremy Frank, LA Opera's associate chorus master, is actually a man of many talents, conductor, pianist, educator, and mixologist. He is certainly the delightful host of LA Opera Connect's popular Opera Happy Hour web series. When you have time, you'll want to check out LA Opera's website at www.laopera.org, where you can find an entire library of Opera Happy Hour episodes in which Jeremy invites us to join in the fun of learning about opera and your beverage of choice. Cheers. Hi, welcome to Opera Happy Hour. My name is Jeremy Frank, and I'm thrilled to get to welcome you to another episode. Now, it's super obvious to say that the year 2020 has been very unusual, to say the least. And if you're a person in your 20s or 30s, you're probably painfully aware that we have largely missed out on the wedding season. Maybe you are actually longing to put on a bridesmaid's dress and go to a party, or maybe you actually had to reimagine or postpone your own event. We're going to delve into the operatic canon, and we'll do that by attending some of the most famous opera weddings ever set to music. Now, I am no cynic, but an opera wedding is never quite as straightforward as you think it's going to be. It seems like there's always somebody assuming a false identity so that they either end up with the person of their dreams or they avoid ending up with the person of their nightmares. You've got some opera couples trying to get a blessing from some unapproving stubborn father or something like that. Or in the case of one of our musical excerpts, you've got an old jaded grump who is placing his bets against the whole institution of marriage in general. You simply can't have a wedding without raising a flute of champagne. So while you rustle up a bottle of something bubbly, let me propose a toast, not just to the opera couples that we'll be celebrating, but also to all of us. May we have many happy years together and enjoy long life and good health. Cheers. The first opera wedding we should crash comes to us from the Barber of Seville by Rossini. Now, as you might expect, this wedding comes right at the end of the opera, and it sets up a happy ending. That's really no surprise. But the truly shocking and unusual thing is just how quickly the bride and the groom go from being complete strangers to meeting each other to exchanging vows of holy matrimony. At the beginning of the opera, we meet the groom, Count Almaviva, armed with his guitar and a ragtag band of musicians trying to serenade Rosina, a young woman he has only seen once, from afar, and who later, after meeting him a tiny handful of times, agrees to be his bride. At first, Almaviva pretends to be a poor student named Lindoro. It's sort of a litmus test to see if Rosina will love him for himself or only for his money. But the problem is that Rosina is the ward of Dr. Bartolo, who has decided that he wants to marry Rosina himself. Bartolo keeps her more or less locked up in his house, and to even get a chance to talk to Rosina, the Count, with his servant Figaro, who we talked about last episode, spend the entire evening coming up with cockamamie schemes for the Count to spend a single moment alone with Rosina, mostly so that he can propose to this woman that he has literally just met. Talk about elopement at first sight. 
Approximately two hours of opera hilarity ensue, and we think we're about to see Figaro, the Count, and Rosina rush off to the elopement, when our heroes find their escape route blocked by a notary and Bartolo's henchman, Basilio. The idea is that Bartolo will intercept our heroes and have the notary marry him to Rosina before this Lindoro guy can have a chance to pull any funny business. Now, not only is this Lindoro guy already there because he's technically the Count, but this particular notary is one of Figaro's buddies and is totally in his back pocket. The Count offers Basilio a bribe, and when he balks, the Count threatens his life if he tries to get in the way. Count Almaviva reveals his true identity and marries Rosina. By the time Bartolo arrives, there's nothing for him to do but to mutter, foiled again, and join the happy wedding celebration. The musical example I'll sing and play for you tonight is different than any other excerpt I've played so far because it comes from a musical fabric known as Secco Recitativo. This singing in recit, as we call it for short, is a spoken declamatory kind of singing called parlando, and it's accompanied by music improvised on a harpsichord or forte piano, sometimes joined by cello. Recit is everywhere throughout Baroque and classical operas, and Rossini, like them, uses this musical style to advance the plot. Then, when all of the dramatic stuff is done, we get an aria or a duet or a finale in this case to show how the singers feel, and in this case, that's happy. I'm going to stop the music before we get to the very happy dance part, but I hope that you'll notice in this English translation that I made for myself just how quick-moving and conversational recit can be. This scene actually involves six different characters, which I will be playing all by myself. Let's see if you can follow along. Oh, unlucky us, what should we do? What's going on? The ladder, yes, the ladder isn't there. You're kidding, but who could have taken it? Now we'll never elope. I should have known. Be quiet, someone's coming. Now our troubles are compounding. What should we do? My Rosina, be brave. Now here they come. Don Bartolo, Don Bartolo, it's Basilio. And who's that? Well, look, he's bringing a notary. All is not lost. Just leave it all to me. Psst. Hey, Mr. Notary, you remember the plan that we made for this evening? You agreed to marry my niece to Almaviva right away. They're waiting, ready to sign. I hope that you have brought the marriage license. That's wonderful. Just wait. Where is Don Bartolo? Hey, Don Basilio, take some money and be quiet. Now wait. No, you wait. If you won't be the witness for my wedding, you won't live to see another. I see. I've got no choice. Now let's begin. Let's take each other, you as my wife. I, as your husband, now and forever. Congratulations, I am so happy. Ah, oh, what a happy answer to all my prayers. We've done it. Stay where you are, hands in the air. Take it easy, my friend. These men are robbers. Arrest them, arrest them. 
And just who might you be? The Count Almaviva at your service. Those of you who are fans of Shakespeare will really appreciate our next wedding, which comes from Giuseppe Verdi's final opera, Falstaff, which was written in 1893 when Verdi was almost 80 years old. The title character Falstaff is a buffoon who appears in three of Shakespeare's plays, including The Merry Wives of Windsor. Verdi and his librettist Boito put Falstaff front and center in their opera, as an anti-hero around which nine other characters and various hilarious subplots swirl. One of those subplots centers on Fenton and Nanetta, two young lovers who are desperate to get married, except her dad, Master Ford, forbids it. Instead, he wants her to marry Dr. Caius, a much older, dorky, but wealthy suitor. Now, that's important, so keep that on the back burner as we jump ahead to Act 3. Over the course of the opera, Falstaff has tried unsuccessfully to woo Master Ford's wife Alice and her friend Meg Page. All the main characters, including Falstaff's own lackey Bardolfo, have ganged up to teach him a lesson. They've invited him to Herni's Oak just before midnight, where they promise he'll be able to have a tryst with Alice. The twist is that if they are still there at midnight, they'll be visited by the fairies and nymphs and will meet what is, for Falstaff, a very scary fate. Now you'll have to watch the opera to see what fun they have at Falstaff's expense and how they reveal to him that the nymphs and fairies are really just his friends in disguise. After Falstaff's friends reveal themselves, And in keeping with the jollity of this outdoor masquerade party, Ford officiates a masked wedding of the young woman dressed as the Queen of the Fairies, who he believes to be his daughter Nanetta, and Dr. Caius. As the couple approaches the outdoor altar, another couple appears, also in masks, asking if they could make it a double wedding. After pronouncing the two couples man and wife, Ford instructs them to remove their masks and kiss their respective brides. To Ford's chagrin and everyone else's delight, he sees that the person dressed as the Queen of the Fairies was, in fact, Bardolfo, his lackey, who has in essence married the dim-witted Dr. Caius. And the other mysterious couple was none other than Nanetta and Fenton, now happily wed. As you can tell by the laughter that concludes this excerpt, For Shakespeare, as well as Verdi, all's well that ends well. May I have your attention? Now we will end our lovely masquerade with the wedding of the noble queen of all the fairies. Now the couple is coming the altar. She's lovely, she's lovely. Nanetta, my only daughter, she's so pretty in her wedding veil. And her fiancé, Caius, 
Thank God she's nabbed the doctor. I already feel richer. Another couple of lovers wants to marry. May they be admitted to the wedding ceremony. How festive. Let's have a double wedding. You may exchange your rings. May God unite you. You may now kiss your brides, lift your veils. Ha 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 ha. There are two operas whose entire plots revolve around the notion of marriage. The first is Don Pasquale, written by Donizetti in 1843. The conceit of the piece is this. An older, confirmed bachelor, Pasquale, has decided that he is finally going to get married. His nephew, Ernesto, also wants to get married to his girlfriend, Norina, but Don Pasquale forbids it, saying Ernesto can't marry until he himself has taken a wife. Pasquale's doctor, a man named Dr. Malatesta, or Dr. Headache in English, is secretly rooting for the young lovers, and to help them out, he agrees to find a bride for Don Pasquale. Malatesta suggests that Pasquale should marry his very own sister, who has spent most of her life in a convent. Malatesta argues that she'll make the perfect kind of meek and obedient wife that Pasquale longs for, someone who will serve him and obey his every desire. Now, you should know that Malatesta doesn't actually have a sister at all. Instead, he's been scheming with Norina, telling her that she should play the part of his sister from the convent, even to the point of marrying Don Pasquale, when she'll have him at her mercy and she can really teach him a lesson. Now that's how we come to the finale of Act 2, when everything goes to plan. A fake, well-paid notary again marries Pasquale to Sofronia, uh, who is really Norina in disguise. Literally, the second the ink is dried on the fake wedding license, Norina turns into a terrible shrew for all the ages. Revealing Sophronia's other side, she tells Pasquale that he is too old, too fat, and too bald to interest her, and instead she'll take Ernesto as arm candy to escort her on her regular walks through the town. One of the biggest difficulties of performing Don Pasquale is how sopranos and their directors decide to portray this character. The problem is, she's actually acting pretty mean, and we, the audience, paid to watch a comedy, not full-on emotional abuse. Even if she convinces Pasquale to quote-unquote divorce her, opening the path for Ernesto to marry her for real, it is super easy for this to just look and get wickedly mean. In fact, while I was creating English lyrics for this scene, I totally empathized with the original librettists, who had to toe a very fine line indeed, between teasing and abuse. To be honest, I'm not actually sure that I struck that balance. So if you find yourself feeling bad for Pasquale at the end of this excerpt that I sing, you're not actually alone. But before you lose any sleep, 
Please know that in the end, Dr. Malatesta engineers a happy ending for everyone, including Don Pasquale. So if there's any lasting message to take from this operatic wedding, it's definitely buyer beware. My wife, just wait a moment. You think that you can kiss me, but wait till I allow you. Am I permitted? No. I find you foul and nasty. I'll never kiss a rat. I tell you, until we make you over, I'll never get with that. Oh, doctor, is she joking? I'm sure I am sure that she didn't mean that. I'll never be a trophy wife. There's so much more I long for. And you're too old and bald and fat. I'm going to get myself more. So you'll provide the money while I go find a honey. No! Let me make one thing quite clear. You're going to be my sugar daddy. I'll tell you what you're going to do. Don't think, leave it to me. I am the boss, I call the shots. If you agree that we will get along. It is simply impossible to do a show about operatic weddings without visiting one of Mozart's late operas, Così fan tutte, which literally translates to mean that's how all women are or that's what all women do. Uh, perhaps to soften some of the misogyny inherent in that title, Mozart and his librettist da Ponte added a second title to this piece called The School for Lovers. The plot of this opera comes from a real-life incident, which was infamous in Vienna at the time, but for a roughly three-hour opera, there's actually shockingly little plot. In a nutshell, two young men are in love with and engaged to two young women. They have an older friend, Don Alfonso, who is a cynic about love, and he makes a bet with the two young men that he can prove in just one day that their fiancés are just as faithless as any other woman. The two young, young men foolishly agree to this bet, letting Don Alfonso tell them exactly how to behave and what to do for one day. When we meet the women in question, they start out talking about how their boyfriends are perfect and nothing could ever change their heart's affections. Uh, since we were talking about Shakespeare earlier, perhaps I should mention that these ladies doth protest way too much. Don Alfonso instructs the boys to tell the girls that they have been conscripted to war and that they must leave immediately and they don't know if they'll ever make it back alive from the battlefield. After a teary, sad goodbye, Alfonso has the boys wait for a few minutes, then dress up as foreigners whose only goal is to come back and swoop in on the other man's girlfriend. Following orders, the boys return and start putting the make on their friend's fiancé. They start out going way over the top, 
threatening to commit suicide by drinking poison if the girls refuse their advances. Of course, the girls recoil in horror and spurn this invitation to unfaithfulness. The boys gloat to Don Alfonso, convinced that they have won their case, but Alfonso says, just wait. He insists that the boys make much more realistic advances to the ladies. One by one, and exactly to Don Alfonso's wager, the girls crumble and agree to marry these new men, who, incidentally, they have also known for less than a day. Now, lest we get too judgmental, one of the girls, Fiordaligi, she actually experiences a true crisis of faith. And in some interpretations of this show, she realizes that she might actually be more happy with this stranger than she was with her original boyfriend. The ensuing wedding scene is a quartet between the four lovers whose musical form is genius. The piece is a canon started by one of the girls. As she finishes the first musical phrase, her new lover sings what she just sang while she moves on to the next part of the melody. That musical process continues one by one until we reach the second of the two young men who is so disgusted by himself and by all of them that he ends up cursing the girls and saying that they should all go drink poison. Despite all of that, this quartet is truly beautiful. And it displays one unique thing about opera, which is opera's the only art form where it's not only possible, but it's perfectly harmonious and very pretty to have four characters express four completely different sentiments simultaneously, without it sounding just like some kind of jumble of cacophonous chaos. Over the last couple of episodes, I've enjoyed performing several duets for you, singing both parts myself, but today I'm actually going to go one step further and sing all four parts of this quartet by myself. Of all the weddings that we've talked about tonight, this is the only one whose happy ending isn't guaranteed. Mozart and De Ponte leave a significant amount of ambiguity about what happens next in the story. You're just as likely to see the original couples ending up together and having forgiven each other as you are to see the new couples end up together. And then there's my favorite, the decidedly modern version where we see all four of the young lovers becoming completely disillusioned with love and giving up on the institution of marriage entirely. For our purposes tonight, we can bypass the philosophical heavy lifting of what happens next in the denouement, or even what should happen. Instead, let's just delight in the exquisite torture the four lovers find themselves in which beautifully sounds like this. Uh-huh. 
I don't know about you, but now that I'm uh, smack dab in the middle of my 40s, those four opera wedding excerpts actually represent something like a decade's worth of weddings for me now. Uh, so hopefully if you were missing out on the traditions of the summer, that will have helped you scratch that itch. So with that, let's bring tonight's episode to an end. I hope you stay happy and healthy. Cheers. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.